So, welcome to The Bailey. This is the show where we give up podcasting and join OnlyFans. I'm your host, Yasin Masood, and today's topic is going to be on super, what is it, super stimuli, super normal stimuli, stimulus, what's the plural? Today's topic is going to be super stimuli. We'll start by briefly describing what super stimuli is. The technical term is supernormal stimulus. So the term was uh, was coined by the Dutch biologist uh, Nicolas Tinbergen. And sorry, Dutch people, if I mispronounced that. The phenomenon was discovered by observing birds. And I think like the, the er example of this concept is basically tricking birds into roosting over a painted rock. You would take a, a rock, you would paint it in roughly the same pattern and color as an egg, maybe exaggerate some features, maybe make it bluer, uh, more shiny or bigger. And that was enough to trick birds into roosting over a rock. They couldn't tell the difference. They couldn't tell that they were over a rock and not an egg. And since then, uh, this concept has been extrapolated upon into a variety of areas. So if we were to apply it to mankind, there's a variety of things that could potentially fall under the definition of supernormal stimulus. And we're not going to get into a clear delineation of exactly what counts as a super stimuli and what doesn't. This is kind of like a vague concept that we work with. It's not going to be a strict categorization. But in essence, it's any stimulus that appears to hijack people's desires to a greater degree than what we're used to. So obviously food is a stimulus, sex is a stimulus, heat, cold, anything can be considered a stimulus, but for something to be super normal, it's, it's when it passes the threshold and it tricks whoever is on the receiving end of the stimulus into paying attention to it more than what you would expect. And I anticipate that we're going to get better definitions in mind from our participants today. So we're going to introduce uh, our panel today. All right, so we have Kulak Revolt. Welcome back. Glad to be back, Yassine. So I'd say super stimuli is broadly an unmitigated good. I would say that most things we describe as super stimuli, whether they, because truly extraordinary super stimuli of the classical sense, something so beautiful that, that you look at it and you never look away again, something so tasty that you never eat again because it's, was that tasty, everything else tastes inconsumable, doesn't really exist. Most of the things we describe as super stimuli are really just just essentially substitutes for social stimuli. So only fans as an alternative to to the dating market, video games essentially simulating a really, really good job. You just said essentially two times already. Good catch. You can keep going, just be mindful. So OnlyFans simulating the dating market, video games simulating a really good job that essentially... <laughs> <laughs> this is cruel, you see. But, uh... <laughs> you know what's crueler? Me editing last episode and just going nuts over that we got we got time We're, you're going to be as smooth and and eloquent as you want to be 
super stimuli more or less are just substitutes for inadequate social interactions or inadequate social institutions. And in that respect, I fully embrace people embracing the super stimuli. If the relationships or institutions in their life are so inadequate that they can more easily approximate what they want out of life by going on OnlyFans, go for it. Okay. Go ahead, Great Jasoni. Uh, I take the opposite position. Um, I think that the our institutions and society should be aimed at some sort of transcendent good, which is either God or grappling with the fact that there is no God, but you long for one anyways. I think that's roughly equivalent to beauty, which is very different from the cheap pleasure that super stimuli lead us to chase. And I think that we're not really in control of ourselves without um, a great deal of discipline and deconstruction and understanding our own cultures and super stimuli take our worst impulses and hijack them, which possesses us. We become slaves to those impulses and we no longer become human. We uh, cede control of the world away from ourselves and whatever innate, say, goodness we have as human beings, there's a sense that we're all equal or we all share in this uh, spark of the divine, even in a secular sense, whatever that is, gets replaced by just our raw animal instincts chasing whatever they want to chase. It's just mechanistic, vulgar circuitry. And that seeds control the world away from people and towards Moloch. It seeds control of ourselves away from ourselves and towards the circuits, the sinful. And so if we are to survive this greatly accelerating technological um, coming dystopia and emerge from it with our humanity still intact, um, we must do everything in our power to resist and transcend the super stimuli, which means um, diminishing them, uh, some sort of asceticism, banning them, you know, who knows, but they're not, they will be an unmitigated, uh, stronger word. They're an existential threat to humanity um, and they need to, the, they need to be stopped. All right. And uh, today we also have saying and unsaying. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yassine, long time listener, first time uh, podcaster. So let's see. I think my my role on this panel is to uh, look at the practical side of things rather than, say, individual desires or the individual soul, just looking at it from a civilizational standpoint. So uh, what civilization is really good at and what has historically made it worthwhile is that it sort of takes human impulses and channels them into constructive behavior. And anything that gets in the way of that, that short-circuits that process, is potentially hazardous. Um, and yeah, not just for the civilization, but also for the individuals involved. We can get to that in a minute, but uh, hopefully to not respond to Kulak so much right now. But I do think there's a middle ground between something that's so good that you will never put it down and uh, pursuing the normal stimulus, if you will. Take, take your example of someone who's addicted to OnlyFans. I think there's a lot of men out there who could just do better instead of falling into that. There's a lot of gains still on the table. And if people would pursue that, I think a lot of them would be successful. Whereas when we have these alternatives that are so much easier and so much better, same classic dilemma with uh, exercise versus staying inside and eating pizza and watching Netflix. Uh, we've got things that are just so good, so satisfying, so rewarding in the short term. The human brain is literally not built to deal with that sort of thing. I mean, some people are better at it than others, and now we have this crazy runaway selective process where some can control their impulses and some can't, but... This is, as Sony put it, an existential risk. I think this is very possibly going to destroy us. And uh, 
perhaps sooner than we think. All right. Tracing Woodgrains, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. For me, the key point to think about with super stimuli is that they are absolutely not going away. And in fact, I think it is most likely that they will simply be accelerating, that the whole course of history has been one of us figuring out better and better and more and more compelling ways to feed our instincts and to lead us towards whatever ends that leads us towards. I think super stimuli in and of themselves are value neutral. They're just something that does a very good job at satisfying our base instincts such that we will pursue it. And I think the easiest way to use them and the way they've most often been used is to get us to say, buy something or to spend a lot of time on a website or to consume something. But I think it is not only possible, but realistic to use those same stimuli and those same impulses towards really remarkable productive ends. I think on the one hand, this harnessing super stimuli towards ultimately empty ends for me really exposes the hollowness of hedonism as a pursuit in that we have more possible pleasures around than anyone at any time has ever had. And if you look at societal happiness, you look at the amount of meaning people feel, any of these measures, you see something horrifyingly out of whack, where it turns out you can't just press a pleasure button again and again and translate that into a meaningful life. So I think they show really, really clearly a dead end in the direction of hedonism. However, I also think that our instincts aren't going away, and our ability to harness those instincts towards higher ends is what has created civilization, what has created everything we've built. So it would be naive to look at them all and say, well, clearly we're doomed, clearly we're going to be slaves to our passions forever. Harnessing them and understanding how we can make ever more remarkable things by harnessing those instincts, I think is the core challenge of our day. In terms of my own position statement, it's probably echoes tracings uh, fairly well. I'm cautiously concerned about the concept of super stimuli, but I don't think that it's the doom and gloom catastrophe that is awaiting human civilization. Anyone want to chime in on their definition? Go ahead. Yeah, I'll, take a, I'll take a crack at that. So uh, I think the, the key way to look at this is it's an evolutionary psychology concept where our ancestors evolved in what we call the ancestral environment. You know, people like to throw out the savanna. Whatever the case, greater than 10,000 years ago, we would encounter all sorts of things from, yeah, sexual cues to how does this food taste? And essentially our brain... <laughs> essentially, okay, I'll cut it out too. <laughs> and You're allowed the, one. Okay. The key thing is that our brains evolved to deal with that range of input and anything that exceeds those, especially artificially, we have no defense against. The big thing about those birds was that if you took an actual nest with a mother feeding the babies and you made a fake baby that looked pretty much nothing at all like a real bird, but had a mouth that was a little bit bigger and a little bit redder, turns out that's what the mother is cueing on. So she will preferentially feed that dummy and let her own kids starve because she has no defense against, wow, that one's really outrageously big and red. Same thing with the eggs. They can make the eggs more blue. They can make the spots more spotty and bigger and darker, higher contrast. 
And those birds will preferentially let their own kids die because, wow, this one is just so good. Uh, I believe they did an experiment with peacocks where, again, you can build a peacock dummy and the females will all try to mate with this dummy with this outrageously huge tail that no male in nature could ever possibly hope to match because our psychology has only been selected by what is. And now all of a sudden we have all these brand new things that are so much more, so much more intense, vivid, and captivating than anything that was there in the ancestral environment. And I think that's that's really the big distinction between a stimulus and a super stimulus is something that is runaway, something that is so much more that we don't have any psychological defenses for it. So a commonality that I that I observe with these examples is that they're highlighting instances where the agent is receiving stimulus not from the trait that they're aiming for, but rather the secondary effect of it. So what I mean by this is if, uh, for example, the goal of mating with a baboon is get, getting with the female that has like the highest fertility, the male baboons don't have a way to tell who has the highest fertility. Instead, they've evolved for looking into these proxy effects. So they'll look for a really, really red ass. And that's the proxy that signals fertility. But it also means that you're susceptible to being duped. Uh, This is exactly what the cuckoo does because it, for people that don't know, this is the origin of cuckolding. The cuckoo bird lays an egg into another bird's nest. As soon as the baby cuckoo bird hatches, it has an instinct before it can even open uh, open its eyes. It has an instinct of pushing the other eggs out of the nest. And it also evolved into tricking these birds. Some of them are like much smaller than the baby cuckoo into feeding it. So it would have a very red uh, mouth. And so even if there's other birds available, the cuckoo wins out in terms of how much food that it gets because its mouth just happens to be bigger and redder. And that's what the parents, the cuckolded parents respond to. They're feeding the cuckoo b- uh, baby bird instead of their own child because they're tricked by all these symbols. This finding was replicated in the early 1980s where it was puppies were raised by wolves and they noticed that even female wolves were paying a lot more attention to the puppies rather than their own kids because puppies are just cuter. It does seem like the concept that of uh, neoteny, which short circuits human brains, also applies to wolf brains. We're sort of wired to want to take care of cute things. So these are examples, these are real examples of what can be considered supernormal stimulus. Kulak. Yeah, and that gets into just the evolution of domesticated animals. So dogs and cats are, we can see, evolved to retain the the attributes of pups and kittens. And not only that, to have those attributes exaggerated in them. So the massive eyes of the pug are evolved to, sim- selected even, to to simulate the eyes of the cutest little puppy and then of course humans seeing the cutest puppy adopted and wind up giving all their interest to the pug that's simulating the look look of a puppy and in turn simulating the look of an extra cute baby instead of reproducing and having kids of their own anyone else want to add to uh, the concept of what we're talking about unsaying 
you know, it's silly, but there was one thing I wanted to address in uh, Kulak's opening statement. So I, I don't know if this is true or not. And uh, yeah, we need Jamie to pull it up for us. But what my veterinarian told me was that some cats are known to get so fixated on tuna that if given tuna even a single time, or especially for a few days in a row, they will literally starve themselves to death rather than eat anything else. So she advised us uh, to never ever give our cats the real stuff. So th- this uh, this comes up, uh, I guess, like it's uh, rational adjacent in terms of the paleo diet. The basic premise uh, behind the paleo diet is uh, you want to get rid of um, food that short circuits your, your pleasure sensors. So uh, you want to eat real food, as they call it, whole food or historical food, because that is what humans being have evolved with. Uh, we didn't evolve with, you know, 24 seven access to the most, the sweetest, the most savory, the saltiest food imaginable at very, very cheap prices. We didn't have that access to it. It's a, almost like a cheat code around your pleasure center. And the, the reason why it's heralded as, as a problem is because the argument is that you are not evolved to adequately defend yourself against it. Hence, why obesity is going up is because people are just kind of helpless in the face of this relentless onslaught of cheap, sweet, salty, fatty food that they just can't help themselves. At least that's what the argument is. We set the stage for, you know, super stimuli is real. Uh, it's debatable in terms of, you know, what the contours are, but we can, we can move on from there. I think there's enough background. Cool. Yeah. Um, Great, just Jasoni. I imagine you could do an excellent translation of the the biological proven theory of it to the cultural extrapolation of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, the cultural extrapolation of it is um, mostly even. I mean, the when we talk about super stimuli, I, I think the the word as, as far as the image it puts in our head that it conjures is. Um, in this context, I think it'll mostly be, you know, technology, um, OnlyFans, cat girls, heroin, um, kind of these, you know, certain very extreme modern comforts. But if you want to, you know, if you want to take a very wide definition of it, and, and I think this, you know, leads to something that, you know, Tracing and Yassine were saying about how, you know, super stimuli necessarily are bad is that, uh, you know, humanity has been developing new social technologies and, you know, to even say that we develop them is that, you know, we have certain instincts, you know, or we have certain incentives because of our instincts, right, that drive us to develop some things and not others. And so, for example, um, you know, uh, language, writing things down, right? Uh, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not really sure what the epistemic status of, you know, how we evolve language or, you know, however it is, but it um, it had these very practical uses. And then at some point, you know, we go from communicating about things and then many years later, we are writing poems and singing songs and telling these big stories and doing things like that. I don't know if that's necessarily a super stimuli, but it is innate in the way that instincts evolve or that certain kind of, uh, you know, functions of our brain or different just biological technologies we have is that they are oriented towards certain abuses of the instincts that might be advantageous, right? If you can uh, mesmerize somebody with stories, right? If you're a great storyteller, you might mate more, right? And that might incentivize, you know, I I don't want to get into too much speculation, but um, you know, language is a technology. And then from there you have things, uh, the obvious is writing things down. And again, this goes into the semantics of what is or isn't a super stimuli. I don't really think it counts, but it is a similar idea in that, you know, you're on for record keep. 
it's not a natural category to be writing things, right? It is a technology that only emerged, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And yet it has, we have found that we can derive pleasure out of it. We can, um, and even just sticking to that example, right, then you you get into things like jokes, which don't really make any sense from an evolutionary perspective. Like, why is it that I can say a certain combination of words and then you start guffawing afterwards, right? And there's different theories about it of, well, oh, this is signaling status and this is, you know, different things like that. But you would never predict that, right? That is something that has evolved out of this kind of very particular intersection of cultural technologies and biological ones. And I think the, the, the biggest example is music, which, um, and I, not to sound too abstract here, but it is very strange that music exists at all. Um, there's no reason why certain combinations of sounds should kind of produce this unique affect in us, right? And no other animals can really perceive it. I, I think maybe horses can keep a beat or something. But besides that, um, it, it's all nonsense. They just don't have the same capacity to uh, perceive sounds in that way. And over time, we have gone from kind of, uh, you know, and it, it varies across cultures, but just sticking in the West, you know, music used to just be these Gregorian chants and there was one melody and then somebody figured out, well, this is more pleasurable if we do two melodies. And I think even at one point the church uh, had some prohibitions against this because it was too much pleasure. It was too sinful. It didn't, you know, fall into the practices of uh, what a proper monk should be doing to be singing two lines of music once. And then eventually this idea of singing multiple melodies on top of each other that make a harmony, it, it produces so much more pleasure than just, you know, one thing by itself or just speaking that we get into, you know, what we have now, which is, uh, I, I guess, uh, Kesha. We've gone from that to Kesha and somewhere in. Oh my God. Ooh. Kesha is like an outdated reference now. Yeah. I, well, I was trying to think of a Billie Eilish. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> keep up with the kids. Yeah. Is she even relevant? Wasn't her hit? Kesha was definitely the peak of something. Well, I, yeah. Kesha just seems to me extra. I, she's like this heavily ironic kind of bathed in degeneracy and pleasure type thing, but that's also popular enough that everybody understands it. Like, I think she's talking, but also auto-tuned that she's always in perfect melody. She was like a distillation of 2000s culture in a yes. weird way. That is kind of a, a pinnacle of a very certain aesthetic, like taken to yeah. a super stimuli form, like ultra degenerate, but also earnest. I'm noticing, so one of the pitfalls with talking about this uh, topic is how expansive the definition can be. And I think it would be helpful to add some way to narrow it down. Because if we're, uh, if we're talking about, you know, anything that gives humans pleasure, then it's, it's going to be, you know, diluted to the point of meaninglessness. So I'm disinclined to include music, broadly speaking, as, as an example of uh, super stimuli. Uh, so if you were to add a narrowing, a limiting factor, uh, what would you include, Great Jasoni? So the original intention of this speech was to kind of expand the definition radically and then narrow it down. So I was giving kind of the most borderline case I could think of to transition into culture. And then, so, I mean, that was where I was going with this, is that music is not really a super stimuli, but some music is, is kind okay. of my overall. And how would, you, how would you make that distinction? So I would make the distinction between Kesha and death grips is that Kesha is <laughs> an abuse of our pleasure seeking abilities, right? It is kind of this, there's just certain things that are, 
you know, here are some chords, here's this very clear melody that's easy to move to that just tries to send the maximal pleasure signals as possible, right? And we will uh, we will vary up the volume and add these filters and do these certain things in a formulaic way that has taken this cultural technology that, you know, has evolved from the monks to, I, I skipped all the skeps in between from monks to Kesha, but, you know, over time we have fit into this thing that is just this avenue of pure pleasure. And the the incentives that have driven the development of music, you know, they have they have changed over time. And in, in, in this space, we see a lot of things, and I think it, pop music primarily, but specifically Kesha, because that's the easy example, is that it is focused on purely maximizing pleasure. And you can contrast this to something like Death Grips, which I don't know if you all are familiar with Death Grips, but it is this very abrasive primal music that kind of it, it, it taps into something it, it kind of the album cover is a penis yes they one of their album covers is a penis uh but it, it it kind of it tries to play on the super stimuli and then get something of aesthetic merit out of them where it tries to be kind of maximally sexual and dark and indulging in the instincts and then it tries to kind of transcend that musically through some sort of kind of technical sense and discipline their their drummer whose penis is on the album cover right he's a world-class drummer he was the drummer for the math rock band hella just kind of he plays all these weird time signatures and does all these things that are just kind of impossible for a normal person to do he's a virtuoso and i I would say the same thing about their producer and the rappers that they have developed this sense of the super stimuli and they have transcended it and they have you know turned it into something but it's it's two different uses of this cultural technology and one has moved into the aesthetic realm and one has moved into the realm of pure pleasure seeking. And at that point I would call it maybe, I I still don't know if Kesha is a super stimuli, but you are moving towards that realm of that same thing of abusing the instincts for only the instinct's sake, right? Where instead of having an aim besides the instincts, it is the instincts themselves that are pulling there, bringing these things into being. Okay. I'm going to ask a clarifying question. So uh, not too long ago, I watched the TV show uh, from the 1960s called The Prisoner. And to this day, I think large parts of it still hold up. For those that don't know, it's this spy ends up on this uh, island as a prisoner that is constructed as a medieval village. And it details the efforts of him trying to escape. It's, uh, it's like this bizarre mix between like psychedelic libertarianism and the spy genre. And I watched it not too long ago and I remember enjoying parts of it. And then most of it was just me bored out of my mind because there were so many filler moments. And it also made me realize just how much better prestige TV, as, as the kids call it, how much better television has gotten over the years. Uh, especially like, you know, if you want to point to The Sopranos, for instance, as like uh, a turning point in terms of significant increase in quality for television. So how do you distinguish between human beings just achieving higher tiers of in in the in a specific art form versus something becoming a super stimuli trace i personally don't distinguish between those i think super stimuli and uh, jason it sounds like might be a little bit different on this but i think that the improvement in tv shows would be a core example of super stimuli that when we figure out how to improve these art forms and hone these art forms and have experiences that were inaccessible to people before, that is precisely what a super stimulus is. I'm inclined to agree because one of the hallmark features is, you know, when something hijacks your brain. So it it's not unusual for people to have binge watching sessions. Like people brag about, 
you know, watching 16 hours of Game of Thrones. And, you know, Netflix kind of feeds into that by just auto running the next episode and people are happily succumb to it. So that can be an example of a super stimuli, but unsaying, how do you want to distinguish that? I'll get to that in a sec. First thing, I really, I really got to hammer this out so that the singular is super stimulus. That'd be a super stimulus. Um, and then the plural is super stimuli. So we should never be saying a super stimuli. You know, English is my third language. So you're, I, oh. Uh, you know, you're, you're you're not the only one doing it. Very racist of you, and <laughs> this is a this is like a micro this is a microaggression that you're that you're doing. Fight me. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Can okay, I do the podcast so, in Spanish? I don't speak Spanish. We can do a French episode with uh, Let's Stay Civilized. Better. Okay, so I, I do want to get to the thing I was going to say. Go ahead. Unsaying. All right. Well, I think one of our biases when examining the question of super stimuli is looking at our modern environment or even things we grew up with as kids and saying that's normal. Oh, but this new stuff coming out, that's, that's a super stimulus. Uh, whereas historically it's interesting. You can look at a lot of traditions where people were afraid of their kids listening to that devil music. And I'm not talking about rock and roll. I mean, fiddle, you know, 500 years ago, um, there's people, the novel was considered dangerous and, and turned out to be dangerous. Uh, the sorrows of young Werther, you know, when you have, um, you have, I forget, is it hundreds of young men reading this story that was so much more intense than their actual lives and then killing themselves? That did happen. When did that happen? What is that? That was 1800s, I believe. I might be wrong about that. What was the example? Uh, the Sorrows of Young Werther. It's about, a, it's about a young man who is pining for this girl and he can never have her. So ultimately he just decides to kill himself. And, you know, of course, it's a little more complicated, but that's that's the gist of it. So, And the readers could also not have that young girl, so they also killed themselves. <laughs> well, you know, we every heterosexual young man has that young girl, um, and, and so I think we can all relate. But, but no, very realistically, I mean, you can look back at these religious prohibitions on what we would now identify as super stimuli for their time, especially. Look, if your job, if your place in life is to plow a field all day and then die, you know, reading exciting adventure stories are, that's a super stimulus and that can make you unhappy. It can make you where you might once have been content say, Hey, this is not enough for me anymore. My horizons have been broadened and now I want that thing. Now I'm not arguing against that. I think, you know, expanding the human horizon in that way is a good thing usually, but it is a two-sided coin. And I think there is such a thing as giving ourselves too much to where daily life is no longer palatable. And that's, that's, I think what we're going to keep coming back to in this episode. So what is your limiting factor on saying? I think it varies from person to person. And if you'll, if you'll per permit me a small digression here. So in Orthodox Christianity, we have this concept of the passions where that's essentially our limbic system. It's the drives that every human has. And it's just recognized those can get out of control. And a very ancient technology we have for fighting that process is fasting of all kinds of things. Uh, food is the obvious one, but even foregoing sex for a time, foregoing really anything that you find is starting to gain more control of you than it ought to have it is encouraged to put those things away, uh, at least for long stretches of every year. But if you're really hardcore about it, every Wednesday and Friday, we, we don't need any meat or dairy or anything like that on Wednesdays and Fridays, specifically for the spiritual development, but also to curb our appetites in general and to gain that self-control such that when you know the rest of the week comes around, we're not saying, I'm helpless, I'm going to eat whatever I feel like. It's I'm used to saying no, I'm used to doing the thing I don't want to do. So what would be your heuristic in determining whether something fits the mold or doesn't? Well, the, the objective heuristic is, did our brains evolve to handle it? Uh, obviously, there's things that 
feel silly to call a super stimulus, but are objectively, if you look at them that way, T typically if they don't cause a problem in your life, no one's calling them that. The super stimuli that everyone um, tends to focus on are the ones that are causing actual, you might call them disorders, behavioral problems to where it, it begins to affect everyday life. So, I mean, this is kind of a also a definitional issue because what we consider behavioral problems is inevitably going to be determined by societal expectations. So if someone spends, you know, 12 hours a day reading classical literature, that's not necessarily going to be seen as a problem. They're going to probably be encouraged because that's that's a high status activity to partake in, right? Well, you, you say that until your kid has never had a date. What? So you, you say that until it's your son and he's never, you know, touched a real woman and he's 25 and still living with you. Right. But I mean, th you're doing the same thing. You're inserting your own subjective determinants for what counts as problematic. So it, I don't know if there is like a way to, to boil it down uh, to an objective basis, but this highlights an issue in terms of what counts as quote unquote healthy addictions and what doesn't. Trace. For me, what I would identify, and it's not certain, but when you're looking for a heuristic, it's about the best I've got, is does it incline you to construction or consumption? That is, I think that the question of whether you are putting for something forward into the world, whether you are engaged in pursuits that have measurable value for other people, or whether you are simply absorbing value produced by others. And the question of superstimuli essentially is, is it encouraging you simply to absorb value that has been produced by others, or do you then turn around and, or does it inspire you immediately in that moment to move forward and to produce things and to look for pathways that are meaningful to others and helpful for others and valuable for others. So Trace, if someone engages in like a marathon session of meditation and they uh, are able to achieve inward bliss, but that is limited to only themselves, would you count, count that as unproductive? Yeah, I would. I mean, unless it has some, unless they are suddenly, you know, they've transcended whatever limitations and they go out and they uh, help the poor and they have phenomenal relations with the people around them. And this meditation has made them an incredibly better person to be around. If they are saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's given me such phenomenal insights. I mean, there's the term insight porn, and I think it's a real thing. That you're just like, wow, yes, I'm so much better for having consumed this. I'm so much better for having had these thoughts enter my mind. Now let me go forward and do nothing with them. I think that is not something that the rest of society should encourage or say, wow, good for you. They should be like, okay, what are you going to do with that? How does that help anyone else? If you were to herald two uh, examples on the opposite side of the spectrums, what would you choose? Two examples on the opposite side of the spectrum. Yeah, in terms of what is constructive versus just consuming. Okay, this is going to be deliberately silly examples to prove a point. That's what we're here for. The example on the side of consuming that I'll use, the one that, was it you who just said the idea of someone who sat in their room reading classical literature all day, every day? and who spent 15 hours a day just absorbed in the great works of the past, and they spent their whole life doing this. And the example I'll give on the other end is someone who plays a video game and joins the video game speedrunning community, 
and goes out and spends hours of time working on these incremental time improvements in it and then shares it out with this community and says, here's this route I found, here's this other thing I found, and attends these uh, speedrunning conventions where they earn a lot of money for charity, things like that. The first one, I would say, is very much a pinnacle of justice consumption mindset. And the other one, even though it's very much still in line with super stimuli and ultimately not as productive as a lot of other activities you could point to, is still very much engaged in this productive mindset, in this community-building mindset, in this skill-building mindset, in this creating-something-that-others-can-look-to mindset in this progression mindset. Yeah, okay. that those are the so, examples I'll use. Deliberately provocative. Trace has presented what I think is a fairly coherent method of distinction. Does anyone want to push back or offer their own? Go ahead on just Sony. So I thought Trace's framework was sort of similar to what I was saying. And if I could just, I, I guess, clarify something in it. Um, th these aren't exactly the same thing. They do diverge. But if we, let's say we just hone in on the example of somebody sitting around reading classical literature all day. Um, there are two ways to frame this where in one sense, the classical literature would be acting as a, um, I, I guess I don't want to say acting as like a binary category, like it is or it isn't a super stimuli, but maybe a positive or a negative one is that the way I think of it, is that you can sit around and reading, you know, you can sit and read classical literature for some end that isn't just what you are, you know, that isn't just your instincts driving you to pursue the classical literature. So the common, the vast majority of people who sit around reading classical literature and they're unemployed, they're at home, they're, you know, whatever, um, it is as, you know, some kind of escape. Maybe they have some anxiety in their lives and this is a thing that, you know, they, they do to get away. They get more pleasure out of this than actually building a life and finding relationships. Or maybe they go in this as a kind of status thing, right? And I'm reading this classical literature and I'm better than other people than what they read. You know, there are many traps here that come from the the human instincts here. And there is a way, you know, you can always sit there and read that for some purpose that is only to indulge the instinct. You are doing it for the instinct's sake, for status's sake, um, for relief's sake, right? Reading around uh, or sitting around reading classical literature can become a kind of uh, a masturbatory act where you are just, you know, you are indulging your own intellect just to feel a kind of insight porn, right? Maybe you're understanding it very well, but, it, you know, if you're just doing it for that pleasure seeking, then it, it is kind of this base vulgar category. And I think specifically you're not in control there. The instinct that you have indulged is in control, right? You are no longer, you don't possess autonomy as a human anymore the same way somebody who's addicted to heroin does not have autonomy anymore, right? You are possessed by the addiction. And there's another way to sit around and read the classical literature and it is to use the literature as a means to an end, right? So that is to make something constructive. And whether or not that has to include helping others, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm torn on that. Um, I, I would... I think maybe like somebody, you know, sitting around meditating, if they really, you know, achieve some kind of higher, you know, bliss uh, communion, I, I would say that is a good, they don't have to necessarily help others. But I, I think that's a minor point in, we can still establish this useful distinction by looking at kind of the intentionality of it and whether or not it is aimed towards the act and the instinct driving the act itself or something that transcends the act and build something out of it. You you become a, you could read the classical literature and become a well-read, grounded, more empathetic person that understands different cultures and has a, you know, a, a stronger, you're adding powers to yourself or to 
I, I guess I don't know a better example, but and Trace should probably elaborate on this, but he has this parable about a, a woodcarver. And to to butcher it, or at least to just extract the point I want to make, is that if you sit around and you know devote all these hours a day, you know, to this kind of unfun, terrible, ta- you know, you're just chopping off wood with a knife. Um, if you keep doing that for a long time, instead of playing video games, by the end of it, you have this extra freedom. You have this power to do something, which is you know carve the wood into something beautiful. You have added a freedom to yourself that you did not have otherwise. And I think. The, the stimuli, we could ride them and we could use them to gain powers like that, or we could just fall into them. And, it, you know, and you could even see this within any activity, which probably just makes it even more confusing. But I, I think that is a useful way of drawing the distinction is, you know, and, and a practical one too, is just looking at the intentionality of the act and whether or not it is constructive or aimed at the act itself and the pleasure seeking of the act itself. Do you want to add in terms of distinction? Kula, go ahead. So I'd argue the distinction really isn't meaningful in most respects. So the distinction is, to my mind at least, isn't really between whether it provokes mere consumption or provokes something productive. The real distinction is just whether you're able to not be overwhelmed by it or not, which in the realm of culture, we're essentially in an arms race of super stimuli. So to take Yassine's example, if you were a rather intellectual person in the 60s who thought The Prisoner was a really hot shit show, like one of the coolest things you'd ever seen. That same person, if we transplanted them to today and gave them a Netflix subscription, would probably kill themselves watching Netflix. Like, like they probably wouldn't be able to go to tear themselves away from the next episode of Tiger King without and actually go to work they'd probably lose their job they'd probably lose friends and family because it's a stimuli that that's that strong and you'll probably remember adolescence like becoming obsessed with this new cultural thing like almost every week which was just pretty much acclimatizing to the amount of, of cultural stimulus our culture was able to put out and i'd argue this is a good thing this is a marker of our culture's strength or strength we had if you want to say we're on a path of decline, but essentially any great king from history. You're out of your essentially quota. You already said it. Okay. Okay. In essence, any great king from history. (laughs) 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 Any great king from history, Alexander, any of the kings of Persia, if you transported them to today, they would quickly reduce themselves to a slave in our society, if not kill themselves just walking into a 7-Eleven and trying the food on the shelves, or or they'd start listening to the radio and probably kill themselves, not being able to tear themselves away. Hell, think of the last great song you heard that you listened to, like, 20, 50 times because it just got in your ear and you had, had to listen to it. This is a consistent thing with culture. This is the arms race we're in of producing stronger and stronger stimuli, and that's a marker of the greatness of our culture, that we are producing art that great, that we are the impossibly beautiful, impossibly torturous Melbanet to every culture that came before us. And those cultures broadly were that to the cultures that came before them. That's the marker of cultural progress. So how does someone survive? How how do we not kill ourselves living within this culture? You have to embrace the cackerel. You have to embrace the, the super stimuli, the culture. You have to breathe it in, accept it as part of you, and then 
move on with your life because it's going right, to dominate you. What I'm asking is like, if you transpose someone through time, how do, why do they lack that capacity? Why can't they get habituated? Because they just haven't had the opportunity. So we've had, but is it, is it possible? Is it something that they can get used to? In theory, they could, if they had like people looking at over their shoulders, but think about it. We've had 20, 30, 40 years to acclimatize our culture and to get used to all, all the stimuli that surround us and all the cultural output and to appreciate the great things and to get used to the idea of, oh yeah, this is something that could happen. Oh yeah, there's going to be a new sexy song that's the most outrageous thing. Oh yeah, there's going to be be a new BuzzFeed article that just sets you off. Oh yeah, there's going to be a new movie that's the coolest thing you've ever seen. That's something we're used to and we have points of reference and broadly, worst case scenario, there's still another cultural avenue that theoretically could pull you out of it. So even if you do get enslaved by the cat girls on, on OnlyFans or YouTube, theoretically, you could still become hooked on a video game that would pull you away from that, or you could still become obsessed with a pol- political ideology that's competing for your attention. Whereas my impression is if you just took someone from an older culture and expose them to, like, Cheetos, video games, internet, net porn, BuzzFeed, Facebook, and the catalog of YouTube and Netflix, they're probably going to be 500 pounds near death in, like, six months. So, besides the acclimatization for these hypothetical time travelers, do you see any downsides? From the perspective of the overall culture, it gives us a great defense mechanism that essentially any culture that we outclass in this, we, we defeat broadly wholesale. You can see this, for example, in the Soviet Union, which arguably, depending on your interpretation of the history, was brought down by Western cultural output. That as soon as the Soviet Union had been so saturated with Western culture, Western ideals, that it couldn't stand on its own after that. Whereas, I don't know, you can go back in history and look at the Persian Empire or any of the- Right, I mean, but, but you're, but you're um, describing like another benefit to this uh, machinery of uh, cultural achievement. Do you see any downside? In terms of downsides? Yeah, like we're on this sort of this treadmill where we're fine- uh, or maybe I should describe it more like a gyroscope where we're fine so long as we keep spinning. And that is a, a reliable uh, expectation because our cultural institutions have been kind of reliably outputting better and better things for us to consume. So I'd argue that the arguments about super stimuli and what's better or not better is really comes down to not an argument of super stimuli or no super stimuli, but which super stimuli? To say human beings need something transcendent or something greater themselves or some ideal or community, that's essentially arguing that that a traditional super stimuli provided by churches that could create some feeling of transcendence or community or aesthetic achievement is superior in a sense to other super stimuli that you could get from say, simping to Belle Delphine on OnlyFans. It's a value judgment. It depends what you like, but I don't really see where a set of cultural institutions or outputs or like things that really overwhelm your brain where you can say, this isn't a super stimuli, this is just transcendently good. Whereas, no, that's a religion that's bad. You really want this transcendent Belle Delphine thing to reverse it, which arguably her sims would do. Great Jasoni. I think that's begging the question. So in that argument, you are assuming that there is no category beyond stimulus. And then you're saying, you know, oh, whatever they think of as transcendent. Well, 
I may reduce this to stimulus. It's just some other stimulus, and therefore it isn't real. And I, you know, I, I think you're you're kind of smuggling that assumption in there. And I think the the churches and you know most ascetic practices would disagree with that, and that they are explicitly against the passions. And you know, many cases, and I mean, you know, it depends on the tradition you're going for. But there's this kind of notion of uh, you know, in prayer, you know, let, let's say you sit down, you're praying to God. Well, there's a sense that you're praying to nothing, right? You're praying to this void that doesn't exist, that isn't answering anything, that you can't even picture, and that for you to even experience anything or to have an image of it or to derive anything from it is kind of reducing this, you know, infinite thing that's a nothing that's inaccessible and you're reducing it down to the stimulus. And I think you know, it, it, you are aiming at this kind of this thing that you can't access, but and specifically you can't access because it, it has no way of stimulating you, right? It has no way God can't, you know, I mean, de- depending on your beliefs, right? But if, if you're in some kind of ascetic void worship practice, or maybe, you, you know, thinks uh, it transcends the void, right? But you're not necessarily deriving some kind of pleasure except maybe in the starvation of it or, you know, how good you are, something like that. And all those things would be a distraction from the thing you are chasing, which is a, a nothing feeling or a kind of uh, a, a, a silence that then transcends everything. But it isn't, it's a different category from pleasure as they understand it. And so if you don't think that category exists, then that's fine. But I, I don't think you can just assume that that category doesn't exist and then be like, oh, this is reducible because that is not what most of the practices, and I'm trying to keep this as vague and broad as possible to not, uh, ex- you know, narrow it down to one religion. But I, I think most of the major world religions with some kind of meditative practice or some kind of thing of prayer um, would disagree that it is reducible to the senses. So I want to move into the realm of science fiction. So there is this concept of wireheading. Uh, the premise behind it is that you, uh, it's a machine that taps into directly you know, I'm going to give the science wrong because it is a piece of speculative uh, fiction. The idea is that some machine taps directly into the dopamine receptors, the pleasure centers of the brain. It short circuits, it sidesteps any chemical uh, necessary to light up those centers. Uh, it does it presumably by an electrical shock. And the idea behind it is there's no reason to engage in anything else if you can get, you know, pleasure that is magnitudes better just through this uh, wire-headed machine. So why eat ice cream if you can just simulate uh, the uh, feeling of eating ice cream times a million uh, directly into your brain without needing actual physical ice cream? You just press a button, some jolt of electricity hits your brain at just the right amount, and you get the same pleasure from it. So this thing doesn't exist but hypothetically, this would be kind of, you know, the, the paragon of what a super stimulus could be, right? So I'm going to start with Kulak. Do you, if hypothetically we did a, achieve this, would you see a problem with a society that is completely wireheaded and does nothing but press this button that gives it a rush of cocaine, ice cream, sex combined into a single dosage magnified by however our technology is capable of doing so i think this theory broadly is subbing in a a prediction for a an argument in essence there are two two things you could predict happening if this technology came about the first would be that the matrix would would come about that people would just start simulating 
worlds more fantastical and more intense than the current world they they'd start interacting with each other and it, and that would slowly start playing meet, meet space and you can go through countless sci-fi stories that took that route and they all seem plausibly pleasant enough it doesn't seem like they're more fantastical the food tastes better the people look better the sexes etc but it's not obvious that it fundamentally changed what it meant to be human or that it's pathological in a way unless you are specifically attached to meat space for some philosophical reason, which would be debatable. So you don't you don't see it as a problem necessarily, right? Well, there that's the one prediction that it wouldn't be a problem because people would just be living out their lives in a more fantastical world. The other prediction is that there'd be some su- stimulus that would just exceed every other stimulus and people would pursue that to the detriment of everything else and just kill themselves with it. But I mean, theoretically, you would have you could have like this institution where everyone kind of works just enough to afford the wirehead, and then they like jump into it with enough of an apparatus to keep them alive, so that they can make use of this wireheading headed device, and so they stay alive or exist, however that may be, and just experience this uh, life of eternal bliss. Great Jasoni. How is this meaningfully different from heroin addiction and just minimally working enough for like prostituting yourself out to support a drug habit and then eating enough food so that you don't die and being careful about your dosage, but then you're still just living in this other thing? I mean, like, aren't where does the wireheading become greater than that? There are some uh, meaningful differences in, in that. Uh, that I mean, we're talking about science fiction right, technology. Right, right. But the the idea is that wireheading, there's no uh, tolerance that you build up because there's no chemicals involved. You know, you don't inject yourself with heroin and you don't build up tolerance to the chemicals inside heroin. This is tapping directly into your into your brain. So presumably it sidesteps and short circuits any type of defense mechanism that a brain would would build up uh, that would result in intolerance building up. Uh, it also doesn't have any negative physical effects because you're getting just pure pleasure directly into your brain. You're not having to inject yourself with dirty needles and, you know, with tampered substances and dealing with any uh, physical negative consequence directly from injecting yourself with heroin. So it sidesteps all of that, but it, you know, it's basically like getting free heroin that always is potent. It's like getting morphine. Yeah. I mean, assuming the idea is that you don't build up any tolerance to it and there's no negative physical effect to it aside from theoretically forgetting to feed yourself. Mm -hmm. Trace. So I'm going to hop in and say that I think even in a science fiction setting where you're saying you build no physical tolerance, there's, you're always going to experience that same pleasure. I believe that is fundamentally misunderstanding what pleasure is and what those experiences are such that i do not believe that is a possible scenario for example by analogy it's useful to look at weather and imagine a different world where every day was a beautiful perfect 74 degrees sunny maybe a slight breeze every day you go outside and you have this absolutely spectacular weather you would have no conception of what weather is it would not even register for you that that was a thing. It wouldn't play any role in your mental processing, any role in your thought. You would just go outside and pay attention to everything else. 
I mean, so your argument is that it's impossible. You'll eventually just grow tired of this, like this wire-headed pleasure center. Absolutely. Because you have no other neg- negativity to counterbalance it and like recalibrate your, your sensory uh, payload. In that, in that specific regard, yes, I would say that you need contrast. Well, I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's something that you could, th- again, we're talking about theoretical technology, but you could build that into the firmware of the wirehead where you give, you know, 99% of the time, just like this immense, intense pleasure. And then you just provide enough pain to make that pleasure potent. Right. And so you can build things like that and you could try and calculate exactly how to do that. And then you run headlong into back towards my original point, the distinction between consumption and construction, where I don't believe that sort of sheer consumption is meaningfully valuable. I don't think that people having lived a full life of wireheading would look back and say, wow, that sure was something worth doing. They'd look around and be like, cool, guess that's it. It just, there's nothing there at the end. There's nothing there. As a counterpoint, we do have lifelong drug addicts and I represent some of them. And some of them, you know, think they have a problem and wish they weren't addicted to heroin or methamphetamines, but a lot of them just don't. I've had a handful of them that explicitly want to just continue doing what they're doing and they don't believe that they want to, they don't want to change in any direction. Great Jasoni. How valid should we be considering their wants and their thoughts if they are drug addicts? I mean, if you are that far gone that you think of this thing as an unmitigated good, like if we have a bunch of children running around, right? And the children all, you know, uh, we're at a restaurant and they're, you know, they're insisting that we leave the restaurant and go to, you know, Chuck E. Cheese or something and the meal isn't here. Well, the children may want that and it is, you know, kind of legitimate for them to want that, right? I'm not saying that they don't want that, but they're children. They're flawed in some sense as, as you know, fully developed beings. They get possessed by their desires. They don't understand how to override that to kind of conform to the social space. Right. But what would be, what would be your uh, metric for determining whether someone is cognizant enough to take their desires at face value? Uh, I mean, I think it's intuitive. I mean, I, I don't know if we can reduce it to anything too objective. I mean, like I'm thinking of like an Aristotelian example where we think of like, okay, you have you know, the category of human and we can make the statement that, you know, human beings are a thing with two legs. And even though there's plenty of people with, you know, one leg or, you know, maybe some with three legs or no legs, right? We understand that because, you know, we have two legs, that is kind of a innate part of the category that if you have a different number of legs than two, you are defective. You are somehow, you know, you are still human, but you you have, there is some part of you that is defective. And I, I think in this case, if you're addicted to drugs, it is a defect and we should not take anything coming out of a defect seriously. Well, this, this comes up, uh, I don't know if, I don't remember where I heard this example before, but when it comes to determining whether something is pathological from a psychiatric uh, basis, so there's a lot of uh, social desirability bias in that some types of behavior are uh, condoned or encouraged. So an example would be someone who is addicted to climbing mountains. That could potentially be just as dangerous as being addicted to heroin, but it's not necessarily discouraged. It's a high status thing. And so there's no pushback on it, even though they may suffer from a similar pathology in that insofar as it risks their lives in a similar way. But everything we do is kind of socially mediated in some sense that like at the point where you're taking that argument seriously, 
you need a way of distinguishing where it legitimately applies and where it doesn't, because that applies to literally everything. Like I could say that about any action, drinking, uh, you know, drinking water or something. Well, you know, it looks good to drink water because it's commercials. Well, if I don't drink water, I'm going to die. Right. It isn't like, and usually things we, we encourage things as pro-social, right. Things are high status. Like, yes, uh, often status is arbitrary because, you know, we chase status for its own end, which is a theme I keep repeating, but often, you know, status has a legitimate good, right? That transcends status itself. We don't just have status arbitrarily. Status can sort who is competent and who isn't, who you want hanging around you and who you don't, who can secure mates and who doesn't. It's not just this thing that can be abused. I mean, or status can be a zero-sum game where nothing is gained. It can be, yes. So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. What, it, what exactly is the, how do you modulate whether something is uh, pathological behavior or not? So, I think with you know heroin addiction, you can say, well, it causes you to lose your job, your home, uh, encourages you to engage in uh, extremely risky activities such as engaging in sex work just so you can feed your habit. It destroys your life in many ways that broad segment of population would agree. You know, that's like kind of a clear cut example. But if you don't have that negative effect, if you're a functional, what they call a functional heroin addict then what exactly is the problem? Trace. Well, what are you using that functional time for? And if you are using the rest of your time to do pro-social, meaningful things, then I don't see a problem with that. But if you aren't, yeah, it, it comes down to what does the rest of your time look like in that scenario. Right. So Trace has has kind of, you know, co- what I think is a coherent heuristic for determining whether something is productive or not. Uh, but... I'd like to hear from Greg Jasoni or Unsaying. Unsaying's been quiet. Go ahead, if you want to talk. Yeah, I, sure, sure. I think that uh, the way Trace has it set up is pretty good. Um, I, I put slightly different terms on there, but there's a major distinction, which is that um, you can kind of set up two poles. I would say wireheading is at one end of the spectrum, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've, you'd have what we might call responsibility or pro-social behavior or constructive behavior. And uh, I, I would say that... When something aligns with wireheading, that's when it gets dangerous. It's a trap that you can fall into. How many of us have not set up at some point and said, wow, I've got to stop doing this, whether it's porn or video games or Netflix or binge eating? We realize we're a bit out of control here, you know? Um, it's, it's something that's so good that we literally are feeling like we're stuck in a trap. That's something I thought of when when preparing for this uh, topic is I think it's clear that there are some forms of stimulus that really kind of hijack uh, our brains. But the distinction for me in terms of what counts as a super stimuli is really a gap between when when it's introduced and how much time society's had to uh, habituate itself to it. So a primeval example for me is the introduction of alcohol to uh, Native Americans. And we'll post this example in terms of how devastating the introduction of alcohol was to Native Americans when they started trading with Europeans where people would, you know, sell their wives into slavery, sell their tools, their knives, everything that makes them a living, that helps them hunt, that helps them acquire further wealth, all in order to to feed this hunger for alcohol that for a substance that they've never had any experience with prior. There's still a problem with alcoholism within the Native American population today. And perhaps 400 years or so of Habituation is not enough to have that demographic get acclimated to this new substance. Maybe it needs more. But broadly, I'm optimistic in terms of how 
humans kind of, they have a lizard brain part that is very prone to suggestion. So there, there's a part that is prone to being suggested or whatever it is. Uh, but there's also kind of like a meta brain within a human mind that is aware of when it's potentially about to fall into these pitfalls and adjusts accordingly. So as Unsane said, like we're sort of broadly aware of when we're engaging in what you would consider pathological behavior. It's like, oh, I ate too many potato chips today. I'm spending way too much time on Netflix. There's this kind of driver that helps you stay within track and helps you avoid these problems. And that's partly why I am not as concerned about the concept of super stimuli as others potentially are. I think there are problems that do crop up, but over time, our meta brain, as you want to call it, kind of helps us stay within track. Jasoni, go ahead. Um, so minor point, this is tangential, but specifically to your uh, object level, your example on Native Americans, um, I don't think that is a cultural issue. I think there is a good amount of literature that says that Native Americans in general, um, if you are descended from them, um, you need lower doses of any kind of psychiatric medication or just anything that affects the brain is that um, generally, um, uh, you know, I guess your your neurotransmitters, they don't down or up, I, I get them mixed up. But, you know, th- there is a thing where they're just biologically more sensitive to certain chemical stimuli. And it is not necessarily a cultural issue, um, as far as I can tell. I think that is a universal across the population. Um, if you are in those things, doctors will change. You know, if you're if you have that bloodline, doctors will prescribe you different doses if they're aware of it to get the same effects as somebody who would not be Native American. And so, I don't think culture can account for it in that specific example. I, I do agree with your point more broadly, but that specifically, um, and I'd have to find links for this, but I, I've read it in a few different books. Um, that's a biological thing, I'm pretty sure. The comparison that I, that comes up with alcohol drinking is, you know, you you have uh, the Middle East, which is almost universally Muslim, and they've been Muslim for hundreds of years now, and they're not allowed to drink alcohol. But as far as I can tell, there's no you don't see the same rates of alcoholism within uh, Arab or Muslim communities as you do with Native American communities. So I don't know what exactly what the explanation is. Unsaying, go ahead. Yeah, I really want to respond to your, your point, Yassine. Um, so we haven't talked about the hedonic treadmill yet, but it's very important. It's very relevant to this conversation. Essentially, yeah, we do have biofeedback mechanisms that tell us, okay, that was a good thing, but now you've had enough and it's time to do something else. The reason being that, uh, you know, we like to say things like, oh, in, in the ancestral environment, sugar and fat were very scarce, so we're, we want to just keep eating them. But that's not really true. You do hit diminishing returns. You know, from time to time, our ancestors would find just way too much of something. And so we evolved this response that says, okay, it's time to stop. And so, yeah, I believe that uh, if we lived in a world with one super stimulus, everyone would eventually get tired of it and go do something else. But the thing is, we have an infinite variety of them. And you can move from one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next in an unbroken chain. And there never comes a point when the easy or best thing to do for people is turn it all off and go outside and jog. There's always going to be something easier and more immediately satisfying. We're lost in a forest of these things, and the trees are just growing taller and taller. You've never gotten sucked into jogger culture, I see, unsaying. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but that's that's one, too. You're right. <laughs> but um, I'd, I'd argue that you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when um, we were discussing status. I do think the broad distinction between between wireheading and productive and 
constructive interaction with the sublime is just status for the most part. For example, you can imagine the traditionally conceived wireheading that that person gets wireheaded so they're just blissed out, have to be sustained by life support for the rest of their life. They're so blissed out. But you can imagine a church forming around this and the church restricting it so that it costs $5 million and only the most elect who've spent 20 years in perpetual service to the church finally at the end of their quest into this Scientology-like structure where they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and donated extraordinary amounts of their time, they finally at the end get wireheaded and they're all esteemed by the community as they get plugged in and never say another thing again. That'd be incredibly high status, and I think we'd look on that church as, if not desirable, that you'd want someone else joining it, at least its own status hierarchy that's interesting. Whereas if you could achieve the same thing for four bucks and just inject it to yourself off some guy on the street, we'd think of that as incredibly low status and incredibly concerning because the lumpen proletariat can access it. Yeah, I mean, it's it does seem likely to me that some sort of institutional apparatus would spring up around new technology in the way that we sort of try to deal with the with you know these nascent uh, phenomenon that come up in society. So you know drugs, a lot of a lot of different drugs are relatively new. The life cycle of a drug that gets introduced, let's say heroin, which was invented in the late 19th century by Bayer, that kind of runs rampant through society. People recognize the pitfalls of it. Uh, it may take a really long time before it disappears completely and maybe never does, but it doesn't, as far as I can tell, there hasn't been these situations where a stimulus, a newly discovered stimulus has just completely taken over society to the point of inconsolability where nothing gets done. Everyone is, is uh, captive, held captive, but maybe we just haven't encountered something that is just so uh, devastating. No, that that was the Native American example. You already brought it up. That did happen. Right, but that wasn't... I wouldn't say that it was... It was Native American society didn't collapse just because of alcoholism. There's there's a lot of things that were worked against them. So it, it's hard for me to pinpoint it on just that. Well, isn't this the theory of what brought down the Roman Empire? The arg- argument of Gibbon was author of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire that Christianity came along was unlike anything anyone had really experienced or interacted with before in the history of, of the Roman Empire, especially nothing the proles had been able to interact with before or experience, in that the super stimuli that was Christianity was able to overwhelm Roman culture, drive drive everyone into a frenzy, and bring down down essentially Western civilization one one or two point oh. I think if you operate on that definition of super stimuli, then it just becomes too expansive because then almost any modern day technology, and that includes institutional technology, just becomes, can fit. So, you know, corporations can be, the concept of a corporation can be a super stimuli because it's just so prevalent and so effective. Internal plumbing can be a super stimuli because it's so prevalent and effective. That's why I was asking for narrowing of definitions earlier. Great, Jasoni. Those are useful, and so they have, you know, they they use stimuli to a certain end. I mean, I I guess, you know, maybe corporations are kind of an absurd example, but, uh, you know, 
something constructive has been built out of these things because of these stimuli. And so it seems like a lot of this we're conflating what is super stimuli versus what is bad super stimuli. And I think the latter is kind of the category we're trying to get to. And Yes, and culture is kind of driven by creating um, stimuli beyond normal human experience and then exploiting it. So the military, for example, throughout human history has kind of created an extraordinary homosocial environment beyond something you'd ever experience in a tribal com- community in which you have this incredibly desirable approval that theoretically you could achieve, but also extraordinary consequences for for not achieving it, and this kind of feedback loop that drives an extraordinary loyalty. And that's been a consistent culture that you can read veterans go on on and on about how nothing on the outside really compares to it, and, oh, I really should get on my look with my life, but I'm going to go back for a sixth tour in, in Iraq. Lee, you could argue that that's a super stimuli that has been culturally used. And, and Trace, this, is, this could be an example of what you hinted at previously about how super stimuli can be engineered to have positive effects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to use uh, one example that I really like with it, I think that MMOs are remarkable, and specifically the act of grinding in a video game is remarkable. That we have discovered the power of being able to get someone to do something incredibly repetitive and boring, uh, objectively, just repetitive, mundane, doing the same thing again and again and again for a reward that exists only within a system a very specific system that has no relevance to the rest of the world, that they are willing to spend hours upon hours upon hours of time doing the most mundane, tedious, repetitive tasks, whether it's killing the same monster again and again in hopes of a really rare drop, or in some games refreshing the same shop again and again in hopes of hopping in just at the time where you can get the right item to resell at a higher price, things like that. That is remarkable that that is possible. It is extraordinary that we have been able to create stimuli so powerful that they convince people to spend hours upon hours doing the most mundane things. And I refuse to believe that it is impossible to turn those same technologies towards ends that we would consider more socially constructive. Inevitably, there are remarkable ways to do that. The the topic of video games is maybe something that we could focus on and and dovetail into other topics, uh, other areas. I, I mean, I recall... I guess early aughts, this would be uh, when MMOs became much more prevalent and World of Warcraft was dubbed World of Warcraft uh, because it was seen as just this like uniquely uh, addicting piece of software and piece of entertainment where they were sinking hundreds of hours of their playtime into it, into a virtual world making virtual gains. And you know, anytime someone died at an internet cafe from having played Counter-Strike for, you know, 46 hours straight or something like that, that would make uh, worldwide news. And that was a, a concern that was hyped up. But society hasn't collapsed. A lot more people play video games than before. There's a lot more people engaged in the hobby. And admittedly, you know, you can call it a waste of time objectively, but people still find ways to remain productive. And I wonder if this is just kind of our uniquely adaptable trait that 
humans find themselves with in that they're able to construct an apparatus that works on a meta level where that lets them modulate their consumption of potentially detrimental time wasters. Great, Jasoni. Uh, you have the, a surprising amount of um, optimism, or maybe it is faith in the value of the human condition. And I, I, I find that interesting um, because I think most human lives are, you know, uh, they're, they're wasted um, in that, you know, people are, you know, at least like it, it, the, the people I see around me on a day-to-day basis, you know, they, they spend their time, you know, consuming certain things. They neglect their relationships with their family and friends. Everything they talk about is mostly at a superficial level. Um, they don't really have any sense of introspection. They don't understand themselves. They don't really see any meaning. You know, they usually, if they have kids or family, they resent them. They resent the people around them, you know, and they just kind of are like, I was, I, I was visiting my grandparents earlier for the past, you know, week or two. And, well, I, I, I do think they have lived a largely, you know, meaningful life. Um, they just kind of circle around these stimuli to distract them from the excruciating pain they're in until they die. And the only, you know, little consolation they have is occasionally, you know, maybe seeing their grandkids or doing something like that. But I see my grandma, she's just kind of playing this casino game all the time and, you know, or, you know, getting really, uh, you know, frustrated over kind of these Facebook things, just refreshing this little thing. And that is all objectively speaking, that is time that is being wasted that is going to lead her to think, wow, I, I wasted much of my life. I wasted the last 20 years of my life, you know, glued to the stimuli. And I, I don't think that there's a thing of, well, she might tell herself otherwise, you know, there might be some kind of valuation. I mean, nobody really wants to admit that to themselves, but it is, you know, just because people can mitigate this to some extent doesn't make it that it, it's not a, a tragedy that so much time was lost to this stuff in the first place. It's that the the time that she spends, say, with her granddaughter is so um, it is so much more meaningful than sitting around refreshing the slots game. And yet she will sit and refresh the you know her little slots game with the fake points. She will do that in front of her granddaughter. And you brought up World of Warcraft, and I, I think not to ramble on too much, but I remember in high school I played a lot of World of Warcraft. And it, it it threw me into kind of this exact existential quandary because I spent a lot of time playing it and I I derived more pleasure out of it than I did you know with the rest of my life. And I remember thinking to myself, well, there's no meaningful difference between this and life. I mean, if we just you know if it's all just pleasure seeking and this and that, anyways, I might as well just play World of Warcraft. It doesn't make any sense for me to say, oh, well, this was time wasted, and, you know. Um, but looking back on it and this goes back to tracing's you know bringing up grinding is that what i remember being valuable in world of warcraft was not grinding it was not sitting there you know killing a bunch of you know dinosaurs in the dinosaur island trying to get some stupid egg or something like that it was um it was a a, a guild it was a community of people who i could sit and i could chat with and you know feel a sense of uh, i belong in this role i'm going to heal them they rely on me. I rely on them. We can tell jokes to each other. We can do these things. Essentially, what World of Warcraft gives you is not, you know, it's not the game itself, which I suppose is, you know, responsive and well-constructed. And, you know, maybe some people fall into that trap of just playing it as a kind of single-player experience. But why World of Warcraft is so pervasive is that, oh, my God, I have this raid scheduled today, you know, and these people are going to shame me if I don't show up and I have to do this and I have to grind for the sake of appeasing them, right? I have to grind for this higher aim of being useful to the group so that I can get approval from my friends. That is what drives people to grind in World of Warcraft. Or it could just be a status. I mean, it usually is. It's, you know, I'm grinding so I can dunk on these other people. You know, in RuneScape, I want to have this cape so I can show off to people in the auction house or whatever. But it isn't just the grinding. It is some kind of um, 
there is the status chasing thing, but there's also this sense of community, which is lacking in wider society. And that is what the MMOs fill. It is not just the grinding. So you're highlighting something that I think we should focus on. Um, I admit that I'm broadly optimistic in terms of the direction that society takes. With regards to video games, I'm making that assessment based on kind of the, you know, obviously hysterical uh, doom and gloom predictions about how video games are just going to cause everyone to check out. I don't see it broadly speaking, but I can't say that that as a definitive answer, that it's not causing a significant amount of uh, detriment to, to people. So the reason why I'm broadly optimistic is because so far, basically every kind of new fad that threatens to swamp and consume society whole kind of settles into dust and people find ways to live with it without throwing their lives away. I think we're in the middle of a variety of adjustment periods. And one of them is potentially pornography. So pornography has been around for a while, but nothing compares to its availability to today. I remember when I was in middle school uh, years back, uh, my family had illegal cable. And I remember how thrilling it was that I had access to two channels 24-7 of pornography. And now, you know, I, I don't, the mind just can't even like grasp how much porn I have access to. And if you took a caveman and dropped them into the middle of this swamp, whereas back in their previous milieu, they would see, you know, they live in a tribe of 150 people on average, uh, a handful of the women there are attractive and they would see those same people throughout their lifetime. Now you, you can cycle through an infinite number of women that are just naked, willing to please and do whatever you want to them sexually. And it's easy to fall into that as a trap. And especially if the real world doesn't give you uh, a comparable counterbalance to it. Like why bother talking to real people when you can just look at porn? If your prospects in real life are depressing, why bother engaging with that? And so that's something that you talk about, Great Jasoni, when you say, when you highlight that kind of the appeal to World of Warcraft is this feeling of accomplishment. When you're accomplishing something with a team, with your guild, and you get that feedback loop that tells you, yeah, you matter, you're good, you're doing something that, that's great, that is missing from your life. And that's possibly kind of how pornography is getting is mutating. So the example that we're living with is the rise of OnlyFans as a platform. And it blew up during COVID. And I, I still don't quite understand why, because to me, it doesn't seem like materially different than the webcam websites of Days Your. And we'll link to this, but there's a video by Charisma on Command that highlights that a key component of the, uh, of the appeal to a platform like OnlyFans is that you can say something stupid as a message to this uh, person that you're just like madly in love with virtually. And she can respond and give you that validation that is missing from your life. And so I admit that while I'm broadly optimistic, I admit that sometimes I can't tell whether the rise of a stimulus is something that just requires adjustment time or if it's endemic of a bigger problem. 
Well, I'd like to suggest that uh, we're hitting a technological critical mass where it's possible that the new waves of better stimuli are going to be coming out faster and faster, much faster than we can possibly adapt to. And I mean, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, people aren't getting sucked into video games, but they are. Some are. It's a continuum. Same with porn, same with anything else. For every incremental improvement, there's going to be more people who cannot resist it. And I think that next generation sex toy is going to be better than anything any of us are imagining. Well, not us necessarily, but better than most people in the market see coming. And that's going to apply to these markets of of, uh, supplying more and more stimuli. It's going to get to the point where the next generation video game can't be put down by a lot of people. It's going to get to the point where fully fully immersive VR porn with uh, haptic feedback and a sex suit is going to be, this again, not necessarily comparable to the best sex you could have with an actual woman, but better than what almost anyone actually is going to have. (laughs) Um... And that's that's just next generation. It's going to keep accelerating. It's going to get to the point where the rate of technological progress is going to far outpace our ability to adapt to it. So what's what's the old adage? You don't have to be the fastest gazelle. You just have to be faster than the slowest one, right? So, I mean, I see that comparison directly here in that uh, you, the super stimuli that we're concerned about doesn't have to be that particularly captivating. If it's better than your worst option, then it's gonna go. It's gonna burn through society and take it over. Uh, and so this is. I, I mean, I admit that this is a potential area of concern where people's prospects are becoming so desperate that they're gonna be able, willing to cling to whatever comes up, even if it's not particularly compelling. At least, like from an objective standpoint, if it's if it's the best that you can get given your life circumstances, then then why not dive deep into it? Well, and this brings us to the rise of the sex robots. Yes, the rise of the sex robots. This is a thing. Um, as part of our uh, discovery process for the show, we discovered that... <laughs> <laughs> we discovered that... Uh, we bought sex- hundreds of sex robots. <laughs> right, so you don't have to. No, so um, <laughs> we discovered that uh, there are sex robot brothels opening up all around the world. In, uh, Tokyo, Vegas, Spain, and elsewhere. Uh, for reasons I cannot fathom at all, they seem to have been shut down by... The virus, which, if anything, you'd think would be the opposite. But I mean, have uh, you ever tried to sanitize a sex doll? Well, fair enough. But I mean, presumably, <laughs> <laughs> but, I don't even uh, want to think about how they do. It. You put that image in everybody's head. Yeah, you just dunk it in the vat of alcohol or something. I don't know. You take the spray bottle. You take the rag. <laughs> it's like cleaning a gun. You attach the swab to the swab holder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we are at the cusp of uniquely alluring technology. So we have virtual reality that maybe is finally going to establish itself after decades of false starts. If it's going to, you know, capture someone's imagination, you can replicate a lot of what men, especially men who have not had a lot of luck in the dating market, you can replicate a lot what they want with a sex doll hooked up to virtual reality goggles and some sort of AI that gives you affirmation. And there are some concerning trends that I notice. Uh, apparently, people are having less sex. Testosterone and sperm count is continuously getting reduced. Uh, maybe that is going to lead to more and more men checking out of the dating market because either they can't compete or there's just, it's not that interesting to them to engage in it. And it's better to just devote your resources to this virtual reality 
that gives you 90% of the pleasure without having to weigh, uh, without having to like risk it all as a, as a gamble. It's like a guaranteed delivery. So I'd argue that at least in this respect, the video games, the, um, the VR cat girls, etc. I'd say is a pretty unmitigated good in the effect that you had large categories of people who the taking jobs, for instance, there's something they want out of a job. Namely, they want a sense of meaning. They want a sense of creativity. They want, they want a sense of constant progress. All the things that you'd get out of a very, very good high-level level job. Mostly what people have been doing for forever is they've been settling for a poor imitation of what they really wanted because it was the only game in town. They were settling for for crappy jobs that they'd whittle away at for decades on end in some some cases. Miserable, but they couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have another option to find meaning. And even if they had saved up enough money that they could stop or even if they could downsize size to something less and leave that job. Well, they can't leave that job because they still have this sense of meaning that they have to find somewhere. And yeah, they hate their job and it sucks, but but just on a neurological level, they'd blow their brains out if, if they couldn't go to that job because, because they're where to want it. I think we've all had this experience of what you really want is something, but you can only get a very, very poor imitation that you hate, but you're still going to go for the poor imitation because you don't have another option. We've seen everyone's known someone in a relationship that's been in a relationship like this. Everyone's known someone that's been in a job like this. And instead of letting people be enslaved by workplaces or bad partners, partners who treat them like crap but just barely well enough that they're willing to stick around around either simping for a boss or some simping for a girlfriend instead that or not even a girlfriend in most cases uh simping for a friend instead they have something that can scratch that itch and they can get on with their life so one thing i want to add uh, i just want to add like historical context and uh, the reality is that most men that have lived have died celibate uh or at least have died without any progeny without siring any children and that's because you could argue that society was much more unequal in terms of status and that, you know, the king or the pharaoh or emperor could expect 5,000 concubines and the lowest of the lowest will just die in a salt mine because that's the status that they were born into. So maybe, you know, modern day, instead of enslaving low status males, they don't know what to do with it. So you just kind of let them live and let them have jobs, but then you give them these simulacra of an attractive woman that cares about them. And this could be just maybe not, maybe it's not a concerning trend as much as a period of um, acclimation trace. So I think that this, I'm going to sound like a broken record again, but I think this is a really critical reframing to use is that I notice uh, particularly in Kulak's last uh, range of commentary talking about jobs, talking about relationships, so forth. Uh, he was framing those as purely consumption ideas, like you're receiving some sense of meaning from it, you're uh, gaining whatever. And I think any time you're framing anything like that as purely consumption, 
you're missing a really, really essential aspect of the dynamic. And so you can compare the consumption element of the job, of the relationship, to these um, things like uh, OnlyFans, whatever, but you cannot compare the production to it. And what you produce is vital to consider as part of the picture. I... I'd agree with that completely, Tracings. What I'd argue is that by having such good alternatives to the consumption side side of it, you force people into a scenario where they're actually considering the production side of it. So if a person has no video games, no alternative source of meaning in their life, and they have a job they otherwise hate but are working at because it supplies that meaning, I'd much rather they have the video games. If they have the video games and, let's say, they're getting that that fulfillment, that sense of progress, that sense of doing something of the video games. And they're also thinking to themselves, hey, I want to produce this thing. I want to trade my labor for currency on the capitalist market. What I think the video games are doing and have done wonderfully is they've taken away that bargaining power from employers of, hey, you want some meaning in your life, don't you? And force them to actually bargain at, at the level of supplying real production value to their employees instead of just the consumption of, hey, this is a place you can show up and feel meaning. Same thing with relationships now that there's there's online porn and real alternatives to relationship that, that if you weren't in a relationship, you wouldn't just be going insane from loneliness, loneliness or your sex drive. All of a sudden, you're in a position now to weigh, hey, do I want this relationship or is this more trouble than it's worth? That having those those artificial stimuli alternatives are in fact very liberatory in a lot of ways. Great, Jasoni. Um, I pro- I mean, this probably would have fit in better, maybe you know, two uh, turns of speaking ago. But um, I think an illustrative example is if you look at what video games actually like. What do we actually do in video games? I, I think there's something useful to be clarified here about the meaning drive versus the pleasure drive that people are chasing is that if you think about like the video games that people play, like for example, Call of Duty, that's extremely popular. Well, what is going on in Call of Duty? You're being dropped into this hellish war zone where a bunch of people are shooting at you, right? You and you are just mowing people down by the hundreds. You know, there's all these people with guns trying to kill you. If you were ever really in that situation, right, it would be utterly terrifying. And the the fantasy is of overcoming this thing. You know, it, it is of, uh, you know, consuming, you know, you have created something heroic of yourself in this struggle. You're, you know, video games aren't just, oh, I'm going to be king of Persia and have the harem. I mean, there, you know, there's some that simulate that. But most popular is something of, well, uh, you know, like, uh, what's that game? Um, Bannerlord. Mountainblade. Uh, Mountain Blade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the fantasy in Mountain Blade is not like, and, and there's different ones, right? But it's not, it's no fun to just start as the, the king of everything with the harm. It's that you work your way up to it. You create these artificial things, these artificial pieces of adversity for yourself that you then come to overcome. And I don't think that, you know, video games are just this side itch that you scratch. Meaning is not some like little thing of, oh, I feel unfulfilled with my life. Let me scratch that itch and then get on with the rest of my life. That is your life. Your life is, in any sense that it has value, it is in that thing that video games are, are stimulating. There is nothing else besides that. You know, the, the video game, like people get excited. Of, oh, there's a new patch in my MMO. Well, what does that mean? That means that there's this horrible giant dragon that's come to kill us all. Oh my God, I'm so excited to fight this terrible dragon. 
you know, it's this, it's a bad thing. It is an obstacle that you are overcoming. And I, I think in robbing ourselves of these, you know, framing everything as a negative of, oh, well, we'll get rid of, you know, the, the employer's bargaining power because it's this thing. Well, is that so bad? I mean, it's not, is the employer not, you know, providing a structure that you may give something to society? Is that, you know, you have a, I guess one way of phrasing it is that you need a master to force you to be free. You need some kind of structure on yourself that, you know, drives you into something useful. And if that employer weren't useful, then they wouldn't be generating capital. And, you know, it's, and of course we can get into the consumerism angle of that where, you know, like, I mean, somebody's making the video games and that is, you know, useless from this point of view, but I don't think you can divorce the two. I don't think you can say that the video game is just something else. It is it is robbing you of all that drives you to be useful, of all that drives you to transcend. You cannot have them both, really. Any time spent on the video game is robbing you of some willpower that could have been used to something else. Trace. Yes. And I'll say, building off of that and expanding on that, there's so much of what we do is a war against ourselves. Or I can say at least specifically and directly for myself, so much of what I do is a war against myself. This is not a new thought. Like in the Bible, you have the classic line, uh, the good which I would, uh, I do not, the evil which I would not, that I do. And I saw this fantastic tweet the other day where someone said, you know, the main thing that I'm taking away from coronavirus so far is that none of us can ever use the excuse, if only I had more time, I would do X again. Because now that we have more time, none of us are doing X. Um, that wasn't a tweet. That was me in the Discord. Was, oh, it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourselves. I consume so many random forms of media. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that like I am, I am made a the slave of, to all of, of these for little you. bits of information popping in from different places. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, and I really think now. Thank you. It was you, and it was a really insightful point. <laughs> um, I was thinking it was Jesse Single or something. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> um, I really think that's critical. That yes, on some level, we want to do a lot of these things. But on a different level, there are all of these more – something we consider more meaningful, more constructive often that we want to do, that these things that we end up doing anyway are getting in the way of. And there's a real danger, I think, to just leaning into those and saying, sure, yeah, I'll just let my whim take me and just enjoy all of these things because you get through that and – you don't really get anywhere from it and you don't suddenly gain more energy like you thought you would to do all those things that you have been putting off. You just kind of keep enjoying the low effort, low barrier to entry thing forever. Whereas if that low barrier to entry thing is removed, if you're put into a structure that demands something from you that says you cannot do this, this is not an option at all, your mind adapts to that and says, oh, I guess I'll do the high effort stuff then. I guess I'll stop doing all that stuff that I can't do. And now that I don't do that, suddenly all this mental space opens for more meaningful activity. An easy example for me would be when I went on my Mormon mission and had to suddenly cold turkey give up the internet, TV, video games, all of these things. My life did not suddenly feel less full and less meaningful and less rich in any measurable sense. I just spent a whole lot more of my time engaged in outward-focused activities. 
And I flipped the switch like that, just based on the structure around me. And I think we really neglect how powerful that sort of thing is when we just kind of say, oh, yeah, you know, as long as they want to do it, like as long as they're getting this pleasure from this consumption activity, then it's fine. Um, I think we neglect the higher side of our own will. Um, this would be a great time. Uh, Unsaying wrote this fantastic post. It is the single most insightful thing I have read on the mod, or actually I think it was on Slate Star Codex, but I haven't seen a better post there as far as immediate practical applicability to your own life on information fasting. And I would, I would invite him to talk about it. I think it's highly relevant to what you just said. Yeah, go ahead, Unsane. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was unexpected. What I discovered when I started reading rationality-related uh, content, and, and as uh, Trace put it, insight porn, is it would give me this feeling like I'm using parts of my brain that I never really got to use otherwise. And so I'd want to keep chasing that feeling. And as time goes on, you know, we brought up the hedonic treadmill before. A big part of that is you get acclimated. The things that used to make you feel so much better than normal just become the new normal. And the trouble with that is that as I interacted with people in daily life and not on the internet anymore, all of a sudden they were comparatively lesser. It was not fun to try to talk to people who didn't have these same concepts. It was not fun to listen to people try to figure things out when I, you know, feel like my head's running at a higher clock speed and I just want to keep in between every single word slowly coming out of their mouth, tell them what the rest of their sentence is going to be and why it's wrong and what this person said and this other person rebutted this and blah, 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 blah. I brought up before um, my my faith's tradition of fasting and I, I suggested that it's not just about food or sex or what have you. It can be really anything that you find is starting to get out of control. And so I started... Uh, doing what many people in my church do, which is info fasting, where literally for perhaps weeks at a time, we will stop consuming media, stop being on the internet, stop doing all these things, social media. And what that does is it brings you back down to a much more normal human speed to where you can relate to people at, at, at a normal clock speed is how I want to put it. You're no longer acclimated to the supernormal stimulus. You're just back down to normal stimulus. And it's, it's much better. Without that, it's very difficult sometimes. And that's that's really the, the takeaway and one of the main problems with super stimuli is you really often can't just enjoy them for a while, then go back to the way things were, because the way things were is now subnormal to you. It's now so unexciting. It's so unpalatable. You'll never want to do it unless there's some external or, or perhaps internally imposed uh, constraint making it your best option. So, I mean, this is one reason why I'm broadly optimistic and that I have a great deal of optimism in terms of how human beings acclimate. You mentioned fasting. That's not within just the provenance of religious ideology. Plenty of secular people engage in fasts. They may call it a cleanse. They may call it a break. But they recognize that perhaps a pause on exposure it could be beneficial. So this is kind of a way where what I would call like an institutional technology or like a cultural technology transcends group boundaries and becomes adopted because the benefits are well recognized. Yes, but only among a subset of the population. You're going to have people who can say, you know what? It's bad for me to be on my phone all the time. I'm only going to give myself half an hour a day and train myself not to reach for it every time I'm bored. A lot of people can't and won't do that, and they shouldn't be expected to. Yeah, but that's not surprising. Why shouldn't they be expected to? They're weak. Because, again, they, they lack the capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's just... I mean, we have, we have heroin addicts that have completely dis demolished their lives. So we have a subset of the population that we, we clearly see like unable to deal with something that has completely taken over their life. And they wake up and all they want to do is chase that high. I have friends who live that lifestyle on pot, you know, wake and bake. They, they literally actually, I have a friend who told me, uh, I have to be on it all the time. 
because the world is just so cold without it, and you can't deal with that anymore. I was saying something earlier about kind of comparing them to children, how children don't have a grasp over their desires, and you know, so we shouldn't really take their wants seriously. And I, I see it in this case too, in that there's almost uh, there's an, uh, a very serious ethical concern here, and that you know these people are victims, is that they don't deserve what happened to them because of their choices, is that they were just you know simply unable or because of circumstance or whatever, it has been forced upon them. And because some small subset of the population is maybe, you know, they happen to be born into a place that encouraged them to be disciplined, or they happen to have, you know, they're not so genetically prone to alcoholism or this or that, right, that they were able to avoid that pitfall. Well, morally, I mean, if we're talking about civilization, what ought to happen, I mean, that is a and uh, I, I don't really believe in equality, but that, I mean, that's a travesty that, you know, some people get to live lives as authentic humans and have real relationships and other people have to succumb to the stimuli just because we think, well, you know, I mean, what, what's really the benefit here? I mean, for the people that overcome it, it's, well, I have this extra thing that's super pleasurable that I have to work super hard to overcome. And uh, so sometimes, you know, occasionally when I restrict myself, I'll get this, you know, very high, high, and then I can go back to normal and then, okay, well, what percentage of the population can do that and what rest of them is completely decimated? I mean, how do you, and I, I guess this comes down to my, my skepticism of the optimism is this just seems like a unmitigated disaster. I don't, I don't see this as a, you know, there's no, um, and even if it was just some small percentage of the population that were drug addicts, I mean, that would already be horrible. It's just, it's, it's so tragic, but I mean, you know, you have all these weaker addictions you have. Um, uh, I mean, almost every girl I've met is just, I mean, they're addicted to, you know, they're just sitting there mindlessly scrolling up and down Instagram and men do it too, subscribing to random, you know, Instagram models and things like that, or, you know, mindless Twitter feeds, uh, you know, Reddit in general outside of, you know, certain subreddits. I mean, it's just these awful cesspools that can drain hours and hours of your time. It's not a minor thing, right? If you have a Reddit addiction, I mean, you know, people, you could be on there and I, I'm partially, I'm speaking from personal experience, but I mean, you just sit there browsing those threads for, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. You could do it at work. I do it at work. Um, and it, it, it takes great effort to overcome that. And I just think, well, okay, let's say I did overcome it. If this didn't exist, wouldn't my life be better? Is it that like, okay, I have this, uh, well, I've disciplined myself. I do this 10 minutes a day and I just get the highlights and this and that. Well, why? I mean, I could just read a book. I could do, you know, if these super stimuli didn't exist, I would be objectively better off. And then so would all the people that are coping even worse than me. If heroin didn't exist, we'd be better off. Maybe. I mean, it, and then there's the argument of, well, people are suffering and they actually do need this to alleviate their suffering. Yeah, I think that that prediction is questionable because yes. you might say, you know, we'd be better off without Reddit or heroin or porn. But then I imagine that, you know, myself included, it's like, well, what else am I going to do? Well, okay, what else am those, I going to turn into? Heroin is probably the most valuable, or at least if we generalize that to painkillers and that there's people. And again, I, I was saying this to my grandparents today, but I mean, they're just or not, past week, I guess. Uh, they're in excruciating pain, right? They're you're getting to their 80s. They, you know, you can't get out of a chair without screaming, walking around. It's uh, let's say, let's say we got rid of porn. Um, do you think people would be better off? Like, and when I when I say people, I'm imagining uh, the prototypical incel, a guy who's young who has no dating prospects whatsoever. Most incels would be better off because they wouldn't be incels. And if they were incels, they wouldn't have such warped views about kind of sexuality and guilt and shame. These different, like, I, I think an incel who has never experienced the stimuli of porn is far better off than an incel. Like, 
the incel who has a porn addiction, right, is, okay, here's this thing I lack. And then, you know, you, you crave the thing you lack and you start letting it consume you. I mean, that it, and I mean, I don't really, I don't know the stats on this. I don't know if anybody's measured incels, but I suspect the vast majority of them have some kind of porn addiction or at least, you know, everybody that looks at porn to some extent. And it's such a kind of hateful, you know, sexist, awful ideology in so many senses. And I, I think you can trace that directly back to porn. I think porn views your perception of women uh, I don't want to use the term objectifying because that's kind of, I, I think that's misleading a lot of sense, but it, it, it is, it, you know, ruins them from this natural category of a, a human, you know, an actual person that you have a relationship with that, you know, you, you can kind of have a give and a take um, or that you might be, you know, oh, I might turn myself into a better person so that a woman would actually desire me. And it turns it from, well, I can click on these, uh, you know, internet women all the time and they do these things and the real women don't want to fuck me. And, you know, in the juxtaposition of that, um, you get the conclusion, well, all women are these evil whores and blah, blah, blah. You know, it, it just, it, it's such a, if it wasn't. I mean, you're, you're kind of assuming that they're viable on the dating market if they didn't have I think to. a lot of them would be I think the, the so like Elliot Rogers is the quintessential example he's kind of um he, he's autistic he has terrible social skills and you know he's, he's like super hot I don't know if he's super hot but he's got <laughs> great yeah he's got nice facial features uh he had a really high verbal IQ yeah um and you know he was rich I mean he had a lot of things going for him and if you, if you just read his his manifesto um and I, I've only just seen the highlights on 4chan I mean if it, it's half funny, half dark and terrifying. And I, I think it's really terrible that he, people started idolizing. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get into that. I'm sorry I even brought him up. But something you find out in all this is that he never once even bothered to ask a girl out. He never really even talked to one. And then he constructed this whole thing. Right. Like most of his manifesto is I was standing there and she didn't even talk to me. Like how, how dare she? She like talked to a black guy instead. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It was, it was kind of bizarre framing. To say the least. Yeah. I mean, he's stabbed five people. To that, yeah. So. Well, I, I think part of why he's become so idolized is that he represents, you know, uh, that's the dark heart of these desires that possess people is that if you could, if somebody could embody the, the, um, I, I guess, sinful, you know, or inhuman desire possession of, uh, of incels, it would be that he's like, if those things, you know, uh, you know, came up from hell and joined the earth and, you know, incarnated into something. He, he represents all those things that are deep down inside the mind of, I mean, the entire culture and that we reference him is that there was some kind of, some part of Elliot in there, you know, speaking some dark truth of this, you know, he is, he is envy and resentment and vanity and just all these things rolled up into one. And um, he should not exist in a proper culture, you know, where we had, you know, reliable institutions um, instead of people being raised by the stimuli, right? I mean, most people are raised. It's okay. You throw your kid in front of the TV or now it's, you throw them in front of the tablet and there's even like a feedback loop there. Well, the kids are designed to annoy their parents for attention and the parents, you know, get so much relief from that by throwing them in front of the stimuli. The kid now becomes raised by the stimuli and it takes, you know, this great willpower on the account of the parents. You can't even blame them for being bad parents. It's just, they, they get trapped like rats in this, this, this thing of the stimuli affecting them secondhand. And then their kids become these shitty mindless things that can't, you know, uh, I mean, like just try to have a conversation with a teenager. And I don't know if it was any better, you know, a hundred years ago, but it, it does seem that I have talked to teenagers that are sociable. And I think that they have spent less time in front of screens and more times 
you know, developing these genuine relationships, which maybe if Elliot had ever learned to talk to a girl instead of like ship posting on bodybuilding.com, you know, whatever it was, if he was raised not by the internet, but by human beings who cared about his well-being and shaped him into something that is a human being and not an incarnation of sin, then he wouldn't have been such a awful piece of shit. Well, maybe, maybe this is just like unearthing a dark strain in society. So I mentioned the historical context before in that most men historically died celibate, not having sired any children. Maybe because back then there was like a mechanism, the mechanism for getting rid of excess men was, you know, sending them to bore or sending them to the salt mines. And we as a society moved away from that. And instead we have this mechanism that mollifies them. It's like, okay, we're not, we're not, we're not going to kill you, but here's porn. Here's uh, video games. Uh, you know, please don't like cause massive uh, unrest and crime everywhere. But before that, we had other social technologies that reduced this to certain extents, right? So we had strong monogamy more norms, right, which kept about eighty percent of people, you know, in um, marriages and reproducing and such, and they would have you know lots of kids, and the kids would all socialize each other, right? If you're raised around a bunch of kids. Like if you have a bunch of sisters, you're not going to grow up not knowing how to talk to a girl. Oh, I've never seen a girl. I'm scared of girls. You've been around them your whole life. But if we're only having two kids, one kid, you're a single child. I think Elliot was right. He can he can grow up like that. Is that because we have you know society is shaped in a different way in you know abandoning these adaptations, then we produce these things more, and then we have to use porn as a crutch. Because, you know, we've exacerbated the problem. Oh, let's put this Band-Aid over it. And I think the Band-Aid just makes things worse. It's just, a, you know, and and I think we lost the thread here with Elliot because specifically what was notable about Elliot is that he was attractive. And I think a lot of incels are minimally attractive enough if they just worked on themselves as they could get up to the threshold to get laid. I mean, it's not that hard. I mean, you just, you know, if you want to be really sociopathic about it, you could just, you know, read a bunch of pickup books and mind games. Um, or you could just like take a shower and work out for a while, you know, but there's certain people that if you're just, you know, horribly ugly or, you know, short, or, you know, you just, you know, you have these things you can't help about yourself, or even if you just had a terrible upbringing, then no amount of effort can overcome that. Then yes, those people will always exist, but you know, a society should be able to treat them with compassion, right. And B society should nurture them to an extent so that they do not become terrible people because of it. Porn is such a you know, awful way of doing this is that you could still be, you know, this horribly ugly leper and outcast and you could have a heart of gold. And we're not seeing those people. We're seeing that the incels are terrible. It's not. Well, I mean, one thing I notice is when you say you can just like improve your lot, the, the things to keep in mind about the dating market is that it is, it is basically the definition of zero sum. Your gain is, is going to be someone else's loss. Like, because you're taking. Only if there's no monogamy norm. No, I mean, even with monogamy, your your uh, your relative status in the dating market is going to be someone's relative loss. Well, technically, pornography is positive some them because it takes right. That's what the I, lazy that's what I was off the market. At. So, I mean, if you want to generalize the situation, so for example, por- pornography says, okay, in real life, you can't sleep with the hottest woman in the room. But here's here's like kind of like a, a proxy for that. Uh, similarly, you know, a lot of things that w- a lot of what people get derive out of out of video games is a sense of accomplishment. And that could be another thing that is unable to be replicated in the real life because it's zero sum. Like your achievements are impressive insofar as they're better than everyone else's achievements. And if you get that feedback loop of, yeah, you matter, you did a good thing, 
that you can't achieve like as a captain of industry or like a, a uh, a commander in an army or whatever other achievement is available to you in real life, uh, then that's, you know, that's another proxy that you can replicate. For the longest time, violent video game sales were incredibly correlated with declines in in gang violence and murder rate and also the sexual assault rate. Correlation doesn't equal causation, but the theory was that essentially the the aggression and the quest for meaning through violence was being displaced onto Grand Theft Auto instead of the crime of Grand Theft Auto. Doesn't that also correlate with increased police enforcement, lower testosterone rates, you know, you know, lead? Yeah, possibly. All right, uh, let's wrap up. Any concluding thoughts? Yeah, um, I mean, we didn't really get to the cat girls. <laughs> I was kind of intentional on my end. I think we had enough uh, Bell Delphian dis- discussions on the Discord. <laughs> yeah, that's that's for sure. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe and pay for uh, the top tier level. I don't even know like how OnlyFans <laughs> does it. Just give us oh, money. One way to find out. Yeah, give us money. If you if you send $25, I'll, I'll send you a, a private nude message. I'm, I'm pretty cheap. Bath, bath water. We'll get some Yasin bath water with the, uh, the hair still in it. <laughs> <laughs> if you send over $200, we'll uh, wirehead you right up. So. <laughs> I... I I'd say Kulak. My parting thoughts is I really don't see the difference between, say, wireheading that makes you become inner, not pursue family or career or anything, and just like pursue wireheading till you die, and say, ascetic religions such as Buddhism or Christian monks that would similarly have you pursue the ascetic lifestyle, the meditation, the meditations on the holy spirit and not pursue career family building anything until you die similarly it seems they're doing similar things more or less and it's just a question of uh, well maybe the monks are getting a rar deal because they're willing to trade it all for for less stimuli than the wireheading would have enabled that's assuming that the monks are chasing something that doesn't exist well i mean between the the catholic monks the buddhist monks and there's probably some muslim orders of monks I mean, and the Shinto monks, I mean, a few of them have to at least be wrong. Like, I don't see them all being right. I did figure out the end of my thought, by the way. Go ahead. Unsafe. If I, if I want to just tack that on. Okay. So Elon Musk has this wonderful line about how technology is um, enslaved to the human, lim- the human limbic system. I think what we're doing is building our way closer and closer to the wireheading. I think every incremental increase in uh, pleasure-based technology or or... You know, just a need-meeting technology is getting us closer and closer to wireheading. And it's going to keep running in that direction until it is irresistible by everybody. And I can add one more closing thought alongside that, which is... Trace. I know, personally, I don't want to live in a future where wireheading is seen as the highest good. That is not something that I value, and not something I care to see. And I'm pretty confident that... If we want to avoid that sort of thing, and if we want to resist that sort of thing, the two options we have are either figuring out how to more and more harness these super stimuli towards our higher ends and towards the goals that we really value, or create more and more effective environments to simply shut them out and recognize when we are facing something we are simply not meant to deal with. And if we do neither of those things, then I definitely 
believe it is very, very possible for us to end up in a world where we are slaves to our lowest impulses. All right. Um, cool. Uh, well, could I do mine? Sure. Great. Just um, That's my train of thought. Don't worry. This is what editing is for. Yes, You'll see editing how, is how great. so seamless. Um, oh, God. I had it. it. It literally what tracing said, but, um, but better and just more eloquent. No, I can fix that in editing too. <laughs> you can make me, <laughs> you seen, can you make me two inches taller in the final cut? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I do that for everyone. Can you make me a cat girl? <laughs> can you give me more Neotinous traits? So I'm cuter and people trust me more. <laughs> could you just okay, replicate so... a few of my essentialies? I don't think I said enough. <laughs> Maybe our April 1st episode is just going to be Kulak's, all the times Kulak has said, essentially. <laughs> I, I found the train of thought. Go ahead. Great, Jasoni. Uh, so I think there is a distinction between want and kind of fleeting desire, or maybe you could say it's kind of goals and these very kind of short-term things. And when I imagine a future where we are all wireheaded, I know that if I was in the wirehead, I would think it meaningful and it would be you know indistinguishable from within there. But... In my revulsion to thinking of that, in my revulsion to imagining myself, you know, as I have some kind of, there's some kind of pride in me. There's something in me that says, no, I do not want this. I want the real thing. I do not want the shadow of it. I want the thing that I'm actually chasing. I think in that is proof of the transcendent or in that, I mean, you know, that's probably too strong of a word, but, you know, in that space, there is something distinct in, in me saying, and even if it's not real, I think just as humans, we should hold on to that pride, to that vanity, this, you know, love in ourselves of saying, you know, I want this, I am free, I'm going to choose it. And we should distinguish that as, you know, higher, even if just to satisfy our own pride. And I think it goes deeper than that. I think it goes into, to God, essentially. But it, we, we should take that and we should rail against this um, artificiality. We should get the thing we want. We should strive to actually build a world where, you know, we have... We, we we chase the things that I don't even want to say the harm because that's a, a stupor stimuli or like the real cat girl. But I think essentially we chase the world of a family and 10 kids and, you know, the things that will actually give us a meaningful life, despite the fact that it may be indistinguishable in some hypothetical scenario is that it, there's something between those two. But it just in honing in on that and that gap, we can see what we need to aim at. We can see what that good is. We can see something in a very practical, tangible level. And we can take that emotion and we can ride that and be authentic people and not slaves to our own our own circuitry. Okay. I think that's good as of a place to end. All right. Um, thank you, everyone, for your participation today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we made it this far until you ruined it. <laughs>